So here we are. We have finally reached the last episode of the season, and that's where I will break down into bite-sized chunks the information that we do know and see if it brings us to any conclusions about what may have happened on December 25th, 1984. Sadly, the list of what we do know is not very long because they didn't have much. They had conflicting witness statements and a whole lot of speculation, a sketch of a person of interest and a vehicle, but the main thing they had is the bomb components themselves, what was found at the scene. And as we heard in a previous interview with Brett Holmes, not enough of the bomb components themselves were available to make certain basic fact assessments that might even nail down the type of perpetrator based on what we know for sure. So let's start with our hypnotized witness. When we spoke, I asked him if he had participated in any suspect or vehicle sketches because his initials were on a couple of them. He didn't remember that. I thought perhaps that the sketches were done from the details and information he gave while under hypnosis. He said himself that he vaguely recalled being asked to draw a car. Two of the sketches with his initials included a person. One was a man from a side view, a headshot, and he had long sideburns and collar-length hair. And the other was the man at the back of a vehicle, apparently doing something related to the trunk of the car, perhaps removing something from inside. The back view of the male in the sketch shows him to be wearing pants or jeans and a jacket of some kind. It also shows the back part of the vehicle and a sticker that was in one of the windows, actually on the driver's side near the rear, and it was about three inches by three inches. It had dark blue and gold coloring. Now this witness, his full name is actually signed at the bottom of a very detailed sketch of the bag that he saw hanging at the air pump. And this is something that I didn't even notice until after I spoke with him, but it accurately represents the images I have within the FBI pictures of the bag that police believe was used to put the box containing the device inside. This man said that he thought it was a Jordan Marsh holiday bag, but from the investigator's notes, the bag may have come from a store named Jacobson's. Both begin with a J, so that might be where the confusion lies all these years later. And I'm going to get to the store in a minute. But the point I want to make is that I believe it's possible that this witness did help with the drawing of multiple sketches in this case, including the bag, a side view of a male from the neck up, and then a male matching this headshot doing something at the back of a vehicle involving the trunk and an object inside that trunk. All three of them are dated February 27, 1985, and the initials on the two that just have initials match the initials in his signature. Now the vehicle that he remembers seeing was a light blue Chevy Nova with a sloped back, and he thought it was around noon. That's a couple hours earlier than we know the bomb exploded. And to further that mystery, one of the sketches, the one depicting the bag, has the time 11.31 a.m. written on it near the top, and it's underlined twice. To me, that indicates that that could be the time that he thought he saw the package there. Which doesn't really make sense, right? Because we have people after that time who used the pump and said that the package was not there. Unless... What if the perpetrator was watching from somewhere around and he had placed and removed it multiple times for whatever reason I cannot possibly fathom? Maybe that's the part that we're missing, that the package was not placed and then left until someone detonated it. Maybe it had been put there and removed and then put back again. While the stability of the bomb itself, or lack thereof, would seem to make that a very foolish possibility, 
Like many other things about this case, we can't rule it out. And even Brett Holmes said the bomb maker himself would be the only one that would know how easy it would be to move and replace that bomb. Now, there was another vehicle that was of interest to police. In an inner office memo dated October 9, 1985, almost a year after the murder, Detective Lou Ronka requested assistance up the chain of command to get the word out about a vehicle that they were looking for. Quote, We are currently attempting to identify a vehicle and a person witnessed at the air pump area prior to the explosion. Attached, you will find an artist rendering of a portion of the vehicle depicted by the witness. We believe this vehicle to be a 1975 Pontiac Le Mans, white, gray, or light blue in color. By comparing a composite VIN against 700,000 vehicles registered in Orange County, we have obtained 56 possible vehicles. Then police broke down that list into sectors and requested that each sector deputy contact the registered owners to ascertain the status of the listed vehicle, whether they still owned it, whether someone else used it, whether it had been recently painted or anything like that that would have stood out. Now, I have that list, although there is no corresponding information about whether every vehicle on it was ruled out or not. It does appear that almost a year after the murder, this vehicle and the suspect depicted in the sketch were thought to be the person and vehicle of interest. The other thing I can't get past is the light blue descriptions of vehicles, or how many of them there were. Larry Gosnell saw a baby blue falcon or comet in good condition. Our hypnotized witness thought he saw a light blue vehicle like a Chevy Nova, something with a sloped back. And now the police are saying that the Pontiac Le Mans they're looking for could be light blue or gray or white. As someone who wouldn't know a Nova from a Le Mans or a falcon from a comet, I find myself wondering how well-versed these witnesses were with cars, whether they came up with the makes and models themselves or were helped along with images shown to them by law enforcement of different kinds of cars. I myself would be a horrible vehicle witness. I could maybe give you a color, and I might be able to even describe the shape of the headlights or the taillights, but good luck getting much more than that out of me. Now, another couple of the important clues that police had came from the bomb remnants at the scene. The pipe bomb had been contained inside a cardboard box that was put inside a paper holiday shopping bag. They had pieced together the remnants of the box, and they found the words fragile, handle with care, and lamplight. Then the FBI removed tape from the pieces of the destroyed box, and they were able to reveal the following. Dining with, and then the letters L-A, and division of, and then the letters L-A. Both of those with the L-A were only a partial word. They felt that those words could have been dining with lamplights, and they may have thought, something like Division of Lamplight or Lamplighters or Lamplights Incorporated, something like that, given the next bit of information. In their files, the FBI found a manufacturer of lamplights and lighting fixtures called Lamplighters Corporation. It was a company out of Baltimore, Maryland. The report reads, quote, This manufacturer was not contacted by the explosives unit, inasmuch as the cardboard box has not positively been identified as having originated therefrom. It is noted that there is no hyphen between the lamp and light portions present in specimen Q38, which was a piece of cardboard retrieved from the scene that had these words on it. So basically, they believed that they had a brown cardboard box that had originally contained some type of lamp lights, and that the box was then used to house the explosive device. I found the following in Detective Lou Ronka's handwritten notes, 
I was watching Channel 6 News, the Mystery Diner, and they showed the White Marlin Restaurant at Longwood Village Shopping Center. On the table were the same kind of lamplights that the box came from. Considering we found the bag at Jacobson's next door, there is the possibility that the perpetrator worked at or frequented the area of Longwood Shopping Village. He then appears to have contacted the restaurant, the White Marlin, and asked them where they had purchased the lamplights. It was a store called The Brighter Side. But there's a little notation next to it that says no record of sales, so it doesn't sound like that particular lead was productive. There's no other information about these lamplights or if they were ever able to track down any other places that sold them in the area. All we know is that it appears that the perpetrator used a box that had once contained these lamplights. Now, these are the kind that sit on a table in a restaurant. So that gives you an idea of the kind of lights that they were. They're not hanging. They sit on a table and they have to be short enough so that people who are sitting across the table from each other can see over them. Hence the name, Dining with Lamplights. So that bit's interesting, right? We can't know for sure if the perpetrator was the person who purchased the lamplights and then he recycled the box in his bomb-making endeavor, but I will say this. I've never owned any type of lamp that I put on my dining room table, have you? I've seen them in restaurants. And out of all the information that I read in this case file, or at least what I received, I think that's the one piece of information that was so specific, police might have gotten some traction from it if they had released that to the public in the early days of this investigation. I doubt very seriously lamplights for dining room tables were all that popular with people in the Lockhart community or even the surrounding areas. That might have just been something that if they had released on the news, a viewer might have picked up on something. And now let's talk about that box for a minute. It's a brown cardboard box, and it says fragile and handle with care. Like a box that you might see when it's sent in the mail or received from a distributor, rather than a boxed lamp that you would get at a store. You know, you go to Target, you pick out a lamp. Boxed items from a store are often packaged in a more decorative fashion, and they're labeled. Usually something more than a standard plain brown paper box, and it's small enough to fit in a holiday gift bag with handles, so we're talking about the approximate size of a shoebox. The FBI noted that there were three types of tape located on the pieces of cardboard that they examined, and that there was a fourth kind, paper tape, brown, cardboard colored, the kind you used when you ship items in the mail, and that matched the box. They noted that that tape was, quote, organic to the cardboard box, which I take to mean that the paper tape was on the box originally when the lamplight was packaged inside it, rather than part of the bomb maker's preparations. To me, that lends itself more to a non-retail type of box. Now, all this is, of course, speculation, but I do think it requires consideration. The lamplights may have been purchased for a restaurant, or something of that nature, rather than a home purchase. You can take that speculation further and ask yourself where a person could have gotten a box like that. Maybe that person worked at a restaurant or whatever place purchased these lamplights, and they took the box home. They could have even gotten it out of a dumpster. There are a lot of possibilities. Now let's talk about that bag. Detective Ronka's notes indicate that they had located that bag that the bomb was placed inside at Jacobson's, which was apparently next door to the White Marlin restaurant. Because the bag had been described as having a bow printed on it that disrupted the pattern, it was very likely their holiday bag ones that they used when bagging items purchased by customers during Christmas. When you talk about making something visually appealing, you do that to draw people. 
Now, if your whole point was just to hurt the next person that happened by, certainly if you waited long enough, somebody would come along to put air in their tire. I mean, that's a common need, and that's a function of the uh, device that was there, you know, to stop and get air in your tire. And if you've got something hanging from that uh, from that hose or that area that's kind of obstructing your use of it, it's just a matter of time. So to consider that, that rather than just placing it into any old thing and leaving it there waiting for the inevitable, placing it in something that's visually appealing, that it's clearly, to me, seems like it was designed to allure, to draw attention. Yeah, it made me almost wish that at the time that was one item that they would have released. You know, now it's too late. Nobody's going to remember. But if they would have gone on the news and said, you know, we found the packaging from a lamp, you know, a lamp. And I know they can't, they, you know, it's hard with law enforcement. You have to struggle with what I can release and what I cannot. But it seems like something that specific, um, a lamplight. I mean, I don't know anyone that ever had one of those in their house. Those are only time, only time I've ever seen lamplights like that would be on a, table somewhere um in a dining t- situation now maybe they sold them for you know a coffee table or something who knows but it was said dining with lamp lights on it so it seems like it was specific to that type of arena and so it's i just it, i find myself going back there and thinking man what if they would have put that on the news you know have, um this gift bag looked familiar does this you know i i guess it could have probably cast too wide a net just like that one bad um sketch did so it's kind of i'm i'm you know hindsight is twenty twenty. they could have just gotten a whole bunch of calls that were irrelevant just like they did but it just seems like it's something that's real specific jacobson's was a department store that sold clothing fine jewelry and home furnishings and just as a bit of trivia for my longtime listeners the first jacobson store was opened by abram jacobson in reed city michigan in 1838 as you might recall my season two case took place in reed city and that's where i lived for about 12 years Jacobson stores were primarily in Michigan and Florida, but there were some in Ohio, Kansas, Kentucky, and Indiana. Now, the store in question here was at the Longwood Village Shopping Center on State Road 434 in 1984, and it was a location that was about eight miles from the Shop and Go store in Lockhart, where the bombing took place. It is very possible that the perpetrator frequented that area, worked in that area, and or lived in that area. Now, as I recall, Jacobson's was a bit posh for my family's means in 1984. We were more likely to shop at Sears or Kmart. I pulled up an advertisement for the store in 1985, and the ad copy pretty much encapsulates the type of store that it was. If you've always wanted to dress like the beautiful people, this is the year to do it. The look is money and glamour. Go ahead. Go for it. Romantic styles return with the new emphasis on femininity. Lace says it all. Jessica McClintock, silk and lace dress, $200. From Papagallo, bare, body-hugging dresses with asymmetrical ruffles give a twist to the classical style. And luxurious dinner jackets in rich tapestry let men be as colorful as they like. Long, single-shoulder gown, $660. Short, strapless cocktail dress, $620. Men's tapestry jacket, $110. Yeah, so Lockhart really wasn't a tapestry jacket kind of town, so it's interesting that the bomb would have been put in a Jacobson's bag. It conjures up all types of scenarios about how our mad bomber came to be in possession of it in the first place. Did he purchase a Christmas present for someone at that store? Maybe a family member bought something and left the bag laying around. It's certainly not the type of store that I expect someone who would build a bomb to frequent. 
and I definitely don't see a greasy-looking long-haired type perusing the men's jacket section or picking up a delightful little coffee-table tchotchke. I suppose he could have gotten that bag in any number of ways. He could have taken it out of someone else's trash. But I do think it begs the question, were police even looking in the right direction? It occurs to me that the description given by Larry Gosnell of the guy that he saw as he rolled through the intersection seems more in line with a Jacobson shopper, if in fact our perpetrator got the bag himself. But that one older fellow, I don't know if he'd still be alive. That guy happened to me when I was 19, and I'm 50, I'll be 55, so, you know, that's been a few years. That, that man might not even be around. Do you remember what he looked like? Did he have long or short hair? Do you remember a description at all? If I'd had to give you a, a description, I would say, in my mind's eye, it seems to me like uh, this fellow would be like Mr. White, you know, little hat, he had a little hat on, kind of like an older man with that little hat and a, and a jacket, you know, type of, uh, it might have been, a, I don't want to say a suit, but maybe a suit coat on, you know, uh, really, I just, it was a darker color, and I don't know he had like his little hat on. He could have been no more, maybe five, Three, maybe five, six at the most. And well put together then. He wasn't like grubby looking. He kind was... of skinny, kind of skinny. What they told me is that guy in that blue car, that, that Falcon, whatever, they interviewed him already. And he had nothing to do with it. Apparently, now this is what, I could be wrong, but this is what they told me at the time that they were interviewing me and us, that I accounted for him just like everything else. And he saw the hose up there nice neat and maybe was, yeah. uh, put the last lap on. I don't know. He saw it looked like it might have been out of order or something, but he was accounted for from what the police told me. Maybe he went to grab the hose. No, that could have been it too. He saw the box or the string or whatever, and maybe he didn't, it, it didn't take no weight off of whatever. You, you follow what I'm saying? Yep. Larry described an older man, well put together, but no one that looked like that was depicted in any of the composite drawings. Now, Larry thought the man that he saw was either coiling the hose or putting the last lap of the hose up there on that little toggle where the hose usually hangs. Now, I suppose what he could have seen was the man placing the bomb. But after everything that I have read and heard, I think it's more likely that what Larry saw was another customer who had stopped to use the machine, maybe, but saw the package there and decided not to use it. It makes more sense, given the time frame of Larry only seconds later hearing the blast, that the man who had walked across the street might have done so because he had seen the package on his way by, whether or not that he had planned to use the machine at all, and he pulled off the road to check it out before getting back in his car. I still can't quite make sense of him parking across the road from it, but Larry did appear to indicate that the police had spoken to the man, and both he and Larry had basically confirmed each other's stories. And that makes sense if they both described the same things, down to the two boys in the parking lot and I don't know that they did because I have no witness statement from the old man. But that other boy, that little black boy, he's going to haunt me. I actually turned to the left, looked out my driver's side window, and saw the boys right there wheeling the bicycles up to the pump and the one little boy going up into the store. A little uh, uh, African-American kid, he, mm -hmm. and he started walking up to the store, and the other... Uh, Young and went over towards the 
air pump, and I watched him as I went through the four-way stop sign. I watched him approach, basically, out of the peripheral by then uh, of my eye. Mm-hmm. I could see the kid, you know, going up to the pump as I went on through, to, you know, with my own business. Mm-hmm. And about one Mississippi, two Mississippi, we heard a boom. Having grown up in the Lockhart area, I know that there were not many African-American families in that area, not in Lockhart. In Apopka, sure, but that wasn't bike riding distance from the store. One gal that I spoke with in the Lockhart Facebook page mentioned that she also had not recalled any black children in their age group, and she was a classmate of Paul's. But she did remember a dark-skinned boy in their class whose name was Hadish Patel. So it is worth noting that the little boy that Larry saw could have had dark skin but been another ethnicity. Either way, this child is still unaccounted for. If he does exist, it would sure be interesting to hear from him and hear what he remembered about Christmas Day, 1984. Now let's talk about the crime itself. What do we know about that? What can the crime tell us? It doesn't appear to have been directed at a single individual. Not from anything that I'm seeing. It seems as though the perpetrator had something to say, though, however sane or insane, his rationale. Bombers usually do. There's a reason behind taking the time to build a device picking a spot to place it, and then executing that task. Through my research, I have not uncovered a connection between any grievance and the device being placed there. Something directed at the store employees or the air machine owner, nothing. It doesn't appear that police were able to suss out anything like that either. Maybe we missed something. That's certainly a possibility. In fact, it's a probability. A case like this does not go unsolved for a lack of trying. Police worked on it for a few years. They ran down all sorts of leads, but nothing panned out. This is a small town and a very specific crime. The person who committed it had to have had a certain skill set. Speaking of which, there is another possibility with regard to the perpetrator that I want to discuss, just quickly. I've always believed it's likely that whoever committed this crime wanted to watch it happen. Think of it this way. The planning and the lead-up, that's the foreplay. The explosion is the money shot. What if it was a younger person whose aim was simply to do it just because he could? Now granted, this bomb does seem a little more advanced than I would expect a younger person to make, but there were some interesting articles that I found during my research that made me wonder. Let me read a bit to you from an article titled, Bombing Basics, Students Plug Into Computers. Now, this article was written in the Orlando Sentinel in January of 1988, so that's about three years after the shop-and-go bombing. Quote, Some students walking the hallways of Seminole County schools carry formulas for building landmines, fragmentation grenades, and bombs. Ingredients for the plans are common household products. The formulas are on computer printouts and describe how to blow up cars and hurt people. Sheriff's officials say teenagers probably found the formulas on computer bulletin boards run by other teens. Anyone with a computer and a modem, a device that links computers by telephone lines, can read postings kept in the electronic memory banks. Now, let me preface this by saying that I am fairly certain none of my neighbors in Lockhart had a computer in 1984, never mind access to a modem. But let's remember, this article was only a couple years after the bombing. And just because computers came on the scene thereafter doesn't mean that these same kids or their older siblings or other people in the community didn't entertain these same interests before computers came on the scene. They did. They absolutely did. They just passed the information around a little bit differently. From the same article, quote, Phone numbers for bulletin boards are available at computer stores. Once called, these boards instruct users how to leave messages and find information, 
such as computer programs and lists of other bulletin boards. Investigators worry that the bomb plans signal the replacement of the jailhouse bulletin board, a way-out example of the more than 100 electronic bulletin boards to appear in Central Florida in the 1980s. The jailhouse was run by a Seminole County teenager until his modem broke last spring, and it included messages advocating anarchy through mass slayings of teachers and mail carriers. So I'm guessing this adorable little ray of sunshine developed the jailhouse bulletin board from interests that he possessed well before he could log on. He learned about these things somehow. In the article, the police lieutenant said that bomb formulas were appearing in schools. An Oviedo High School chemistry teacher found a student carrying a printout of bomb plans. The kid said he copied the formulas from a disc given to him by a friend. At a different local high school, a teacher confiscated a U.S. Army manual about explosives. That student claimed he had it because he wanted to join the Navy to learn underwater detonation techniques. There was also a rash of mailbox bombings near Lake Brantley High School in the previous three years leading up to this 1988 article. The lieutenant commenting in the article said, quote, Lake Brantley, for some reason, is like the Academy of Bombings. Lake Brantley, by the way, is in Altamont Springs, Florida, about 13 miles north of Orlando. In 1985 and 1986, seven crude bombs were left at four homes in Orange and Seminole counties. Six exploded, but nobody was hurt. The article mentions rival students engaging in electronic insults were using the jailhouse bulletin board, and these students were described by the lieutenant as having above-average intelligence. I'm giving you this quick history because in the shop-and-go bombing case, some teenagers were looked into. One supplemental report dated about three months after the bombing says that an officer responded to a residence on East Orange Street in Apopka and was given bomb sketches. I can only imagine how that conversation went over with his parents. Apparently, a 15-year-old was given the sketches on notebook paper by a 16-year-old classmate at the beginning of the school year. Needless to say, police took these sketches into custody. From the beginning of time, wily kids with overactive imaginations and a modicum of intelligence have figured out ways to do some crazy shit. And we have all known that guy, right? That one guy in chemistry class who you're pretty certain could have taken down a building if the need would have arisen? Obviously, I don't have a copy of these. It's not like police are liable to fork over bomb-making sketches. I'm pretty sure that's something that they have a basis to exclude in a standard FOIA request. I can only surmise that what they saw in these sketches was not similar to the device used in the shop-and-go incident. As I said, that device was a bit more advanced than I would expect a teenager to put together, and it seems as though the bombs associated with teenagers at the time were much more crudely made, based on the reporting. Another really important thing to remember is that there were no witness statements indicating that there were any teenagers loitering around the air pump on Christmas Day in 1984. Now, another thing that I learned when I spoke with Dan Tracy of the Orlando Sentinel stood out as interesting to me. I remember, I mean, and I, I never, we never wrote the story, and I don't ever remember, we could never substantiate it, but there was always a rumor that, that the bomb was actually there because some guy was, had a fight with a, with a woman who might have worked there, and he was, he was mad at her, and that it was meant for her, and that Paul had accidentally happened upon it, now, like I said, no one ever, we could never get that confirmed, huh. um, so we never ran it. But that was a rumor that was 
that was out there towards the end. Um, but obviously, ATF never had anything or anybody else ever had anything to, uh, to substantiate that. Interesting. Um, well, I think we would have seen something. Right. Yeah. Huh. But that was the only moment I'd ever heard you know, that made any sense to me. But like I said, we couldn't, we couldn't substantiate it, so we never wrote anything about it. Did you speak with the, the woman? Uh, we, we didn't have a name. We didn't know. Gotcha. You know, I mean, you know. Yeah. Um, and I'm assuming, you know, she probably, if, if it was indeed true, and who knows, um, I'm probably sure I would have hit the road because those kind of jobs, you know, you can right. find another one of those jobs somewhere else pretty easily. Yes, yeah. Um, and if, I, if, that was, if that were the case, I would have got the heck out of Dodge if I was her. And when you were chasing down that possible um, lead as far as the employees, did you speak to um, a number of the employees about it? Well, the time that came out, I mean, it was this was by the time I heard that, it was years after the fact. I mean, years after the fact, and so nobody even at that store would have, you know, the turnover at those stores is pretty dramatic, right? Um, and I, I don't, I didn't even get the tip. It was another reporter, and I don't know how seriously he ran it down. He just mentioned, he said, "Hey, you know, this is a, this is what they told me, but you know, they ne- they, they never were able to uh, pin it on anyone." So I rolled that idea around in my head for a bit, and what I came up with is that if the bomb was meant for a specific clerk at the store, first, as Brett Holmes mentioned, the bomb itself really wasn't adequate to injure someone inside the store, unless they were hoping broken glass got to them. No, it was meant as a device to injure someone who was near it, and that's what all the nails put inside were about. If it was meant for a specific clerk, it would have been meant for, I assume, the clerk on duty that day. Her name was Judy. But the bomb maker would have to believe that Judy would have a reason to walk outside, go over to the air machine, and move the hose, because that's how he set the bomb up to detonate, right? With the monofilament line. And there is no situation in which the clerks would likely be doing that. As Kay mentioned, that wasn't even the store's machine. They had nothing to do with it. It was owned and maintained by someone else. So in the end, I'm not sure that that tip makes much sense. So here's what we're left with. Not much. I can usually give you a pretty good assessment of possible suspects when I cover a case, but in this one, there don't appear to be any. Not even close. About a month after I first contacted the records department at the sheriff's office, after deciding to feature this case on the podcast, I learned that while she had been searching high and low for the archived documents, the records clerk eventually found them in a pile that had been pulled for retention purposes about to be destroyed. I literally missed losing all these documents forever, by one day. She was great, by the way. She copied everything for me. Crime scene pictures and all, including images that they received from the FBI, showing all the pieces that were retrieved from the scene after the bomb detonated. I posted all the images to an album in the Down and Away closed discussion group, and you are more than welcome to pop over and check them out. The Down and Away Facebook page has a quick link to get you to that group, so go ahead and let your fingers do the walking. I wish I could give you more answers on this case. By now, I'm sure you guys know how much I hate them. Unanswered questions. They keep me up at night. One of the troubling things that I encountered more frequently than I'd like, given that I'm researching a case that occurred in the town where I grew up, is that people I wanted to speak with were in jail or had violent offenses on the record that, frankly, precluded me from reaching out to them. While none of them had offenses that screamed, I might have made some bombs a couple decades ago, I'm not generally disposed to jumping deep into an area that puts me at risk. 
I will say that I looked into each of them behind the scenes, and in none of those instances did I see any red flags as far as connections to this case. Lockhart, Florida was, and still is, an economically depressed area, compared to some of the surrounding towns. It's very common to find people with criminal histories growing up in areas like this. Which is not to say that Lockhart is a bad little town. It's not. It's great. Lots of people that live there were born there and wouldn't think of leaving. I was raised there, as were lots of my schoolmates. Most of us turned out just fine. Haven't spent even one day in the pokey. And some of the people I knew growing up have. Spent some time in the pokey, I mean, and they still turned out pretty good, after an admittedly herky-jerky start. The other thing I encountered, which I suspect could have played heavily into why this case was never solved, is that people, locals, they didn't want to talk about it. For whatever reason, they just didn't. And don't get me wrong, a handful of people were very helpful, and I am extremely grateful for the people who let me record interviews so that you could hear their stories. I eventually did hear from the man who owned the air machine. He said his son told him I was looking for him. It was a short, strange call. He asked how I knew about the break-ins to his machines, and I told him that it was covered in the local paper. Then I heard another voice in the background, and he said his wife didn't want him to talk to me because she was afraid he would get sued, although I'm not quite sure who she thought was going to sue them. Then he said that his son was hoping to get some money out of the deal because he'd just been laid off. I told him that I don't make any money on my podcast. In fact, I spend quite a bit on it, and I sure don't fork over money for interviews. I did say it a little bit nicer than that, but that's where the conversation ended. This is something that I encounter frequently. Not the request for money part. Thankfully, that doesn't happen very often, but the part about people not wanting to talk. It's not just specific to this case or even this state or area of the country. It's common. Very often, people just don't want to get involved. They've got enough on their plates and they don't have room for anything else. Thank you very much. Particularly anything unpleasant. And hell, we've got an actual virus out there killing people right now, so I doubt my podcast is on anyone's priority list. I get it. But cases do go cold all the time because people with information don't come forward. That's a fact. And as painful as this truth bomb is, you need to hear it. Communities and the people in them are equally responsible for cases getting solved as law enforcement is. These folks in uniform don't consult a crystal ball. Their information is not gleaned from tarot cards or a magic eight ball. Police rely on people coming forward to tell them what they know. In this case, it doesn't look like anyone did. At least not anyone with any substantive information that could have sent them in the right direction. And that's a shame because a little boy lost his leg in the middle of town on Christmas Day. It was his 11th birthday, a day that he already knew when he woke up that he wasn't going to be getting any presents. And that kid spent his day cobbling together empty bottles to take back to the store to get change for a soda and that goddamn air machine. And what he was left with was one less leg and a lot of painful memories. Imagine that. His entire life changed in that moment, and he still has no idea why. Who would do something like this? Why? I wish I could tell you. I have more questions than when I started researching this case and zero answers. I do believe someone knows who committed this crime. Lockhart is too small a town for someone not to know. I guess it could have been someone random passing through or who lived elsewhere, but not much about that makes any sense. 
It seems to me the type of person who commits an act like this would want other people to know. Perhaps he was not expecting a child to get hurt. And when that happened, he was so ashamed, he never spoke of it. He just scurried into the shadows and hid. Because who are you going to share that kind of thing with, right? You tell anyone you did something that ended up hurting a kid and everybody knows you're a piece of shit. Maybe he left town. Couldn't stand to see the spot where it happened. Or maybe he didn't. Maybe he still lives around there and he thinks about it every time he drives past that store. I hope he does. Everyone that lived around there back then would have known that that air pump got a lot of use, and much of that by kids. Lots of them rode their bikes to school next door. It's equally possible that the bomber didn't care who got injured because it was never about that. It was always about him. Him and his grievance. His anger. Him and what he believed the world owed him. Maybe one day we'll learn the truth. Maybe one day someone will speak up. That kid grew into a man, and I'm guessing he'd like to know why he lost a leg. I don't believe this case will ever be adjudicated because the statute of limitations has run out. Justice will not be served for Paul Jewell. But maybe one day he'll get some answers. I think that's the best that he can hope for. And if that doesn't piss you off, you're a better person than me. I want to thank you guys so much for listening and being patient, as always. I get the seasons out as fast as I can to you, but, you know, there's a lot of life happening in the middle, in between. If you have a second and you like the podcast, I'd love it if you went over and put in a review. Given current events, I hope everybody's taking care of those around you, checking in on people, washing your hands, covering your cough, and all that jazz. Take care. We'll see you next season.